0: Welcome to the Wild Isle Podcast. And today I have with me Nathan Cumberledge. How are you doing, Nate?
1: Ah, oh, doing all right. Yeah. Uh uh-huh.
0: I've known Nathan for a while. Uh, we met, actually. It, it's actually. It, let's get right into that story. It's a really funny one. Actually, before I do, uh, I wanted to uh, shill some of my own services. So uh, if you're listening to uh, this podcast for the first time, you might not know. Um, I'm also a fantasy fiction author and freelance editor. Uh, you can find both of those things at my website, wildislelit.com. Uh, there should be a link below if you're listening on YouTube. But if you're on my website already, you can. And just follow the uh, little guide at the top. But before we get into what we're actually going to be talking about today, I wanted to tell a little story about uh, how Nate and I met. Uh, Nate, do you remember?
1: Uh, yes, it was at a uh, martial arts meetup whenever we were in university. Or, well, rather, I was in university and you were just uh, a hanger about, more or less. Uh, and Yeah, so uh, we were, uh, it was like this, cl- uh, like an after class club sort of environment. And, uh, we had, s- uh, started talking about, I-, I don't remember. It was, uh, some author or something. Uh,
0: uh, if it was an author, it had to have been Lovecraft at the time. I don't mm-hmm. imagine who else it might have been.
1: Yeah. So we were talking of uh, I I don't even remember what brought it up, but we were casually talking about Lovecraft, and we just really got into talking about uh, our mutual interest in various uh, topics, and it just happened to coincidentally line up that we were really into a lot of the same stuff. Yeah, and Nathan actually got me into
0: um, a lot of philosophy that otherwise I would not have given the chance, including Nietzsche, you, uh, anyone who's listening to me talk for any length of time will hear that name get brought up, and that's actually the part of the story before we had had that conversation after the club meeting. Do you remember the club meeting itself? Um, Vaguely. Yeah. So I came in there and this is when it was run before, uh, I think it was Brandon Brown took it over. Mm -hmm. Uh, And every – Everyone was kind of there and just kind of expected it was going to be sort of like a McDojo lesson. You're going to come and do some moves. And I showed up and I come from like a school of martial arts where it's like hardcore Confucian hellhole. Uh, <laughs> and so I, I come in there and everyone kind of turns to me because I had happened to be the person with the most experience. And I just start making everyone do grueling exercises. Uh, and then what did you say to me? It was or you shouted it out to the room as a whole. Uh, something about the Ubermensch? Yeah. I, I think that and that's probably why I talked to you afterwards. It's, I it's think
1: really... I called you a uh, uh, vaguely ethnic Ubermensch or something.
0: That <laughs> <It> was hilarious. <laughs> that's, that's the story how Nate and I met. Um, and I, since then, have looked to Nathan for, let's say... Uh, philosophy and thought that is well outstru outside of the mainstream because you were my introduction to that,
1: right? Yeah. Um, I'm a bit of an eccentric weirdo when it comes to uh political and philosophical concepts. Yeah, and and, and something that
0: you really showed me, particularly through that introduction with um with Nietzsche, is that there are there are a lot of ideas that on the face of them, uh with all of our I'd say moral prejudices, if you will, sound really dark and evil and terrible uh, until you actually start to peel them open and then you start to realize that, uh, you know, we as moderns take a lot of things for granted. And then when you start not taking those things for granted anymore, a lot of ideas start making more sense you can look backward into history and instead of just seeing uh, barbaric savages you see barbaric savages that were kind of pragmatic uh with the situation that they found themselves in that we are still in but we often deny that we are in uh, and that's kind of what, how i want to segue into this so um i mentioned to nate that we're going to be talking about the dark enlightenment because that was a good starting place for delving backward into old ideas that are being, uh, I would say, as far as I'm aware, put forward again. Things like a return to monarchy uh, might be one, or uh, there are are others, but I'm not well versed in this, so Nate, just take it away. What's a Dark Enlightenment?
1: While I do read a lot about the Dark Enlightenment, I must uh, specify that I do not specifically endorse any one writer of the Dark Enlightenment, merely that I am vaguely interested in their ideas. The most uh, famous figure, probably, of the Dark Enlightenment would be Curtis Yarvin, formerly known as Mencius Moldbug. Uh, He was kind of a... uh, his whole deal was criticism of uh, the modern conception of what he called the cathedral, which was the institutional framework in which uh, context is established, so, what I mean by that is if anybody is familiar with Metal Gear Solid 2, uh, the bad guys that have the computer system, they talk about the idea of establishing context. So, ideas can only be viewed from the fa- framework of the mainstream. There are right and wrong opinions to have, et cetera, et cetera. I'm greatly simplifying his version of it, but this is just a summary. Um, I. We don't know who came first, but also another notable name in this uh, kind of sphere is Nick Land, who uh, is a very eccentric uh, dude who believes that capitalism is like a machine intelligence from the future sending itself back in time or something post-singular. That's not important, but what is important? (laughs) <laughs> what is important is both of these guys generally believe in a return to more traditional uh, structures of society that are aristocratic in nature, but with a technological edge, uh, a form of uh, m- smaller scale technocracy. Um, uh, Moldbug explores it a little bit in Patchwork specifically, if anybody is interested in a work where that is available for free, in which he kind of lays it out. Again, not that I necessarily agree with this, but it is certainly an interesting and odd philosophy. We disavow the wrong thing. Yes. (laughs) Um, But in all seriousness, um, I think that uh, Nick Land and a lot of these guys in particular put way too much stock in um, programmers as the aristocracy, while I do believe... Personally, and will go on the record of saying that I think democracy and republicanism, for the most part, is a fad in human history every time it has occurred. I do not necessarily believe that the best aristocrats are scientists and uh, computer programmers.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I also don't think um, that, let's say democracies republics or otherwise have ever lasted very long even especially like you look at back at athens like yeah. it was um waves of democratic choice choices that led them into some dark age that they then had to come back out of over and over and over again when they went into just football hooligan levels of spontaneous and not very strategic war
1: yeah um that but- that, uh, uh, the idea of, uh, that kind of hooliganism actually greatly influenced pretty much all of Western thought on conflict, actually, to the point where, um, I forget who wrote it, but, uh, it's described in The Western Way of War, in which, uh, the, the author in question, view says that, like, the group hooliganism is what gave birth to the phalanx, and the desire for two competing forces to just meet up and have one decisive battle that decides everything, and that pretty much colored all of Western military thought throughout all of human history. And it was also viewed by the Persians, who were fighting the Greeks later on, as very bizarre. Like, instead of fighting out long, complicated, logistical conflicts, the Greeks would just get all their guys, gather them up in a field outside of their city-states, and just beat the shit out of each other.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it reveals something in it. It makes me think that, uh, you know, the founding fathers that say the American Republic get shipped for this, but the more, let's say, the more I read, the older I get, the more I think they are right to, let's say, like limit um, legislative authority to landowners. Uh, and, you know, maybe the whole thing, the whole enterprise is not legitimate uh, to begin with, but if I look at it purely from a um, pragmatic perspective, uh when you hand things over to uh as Nietzsche would call the herd things go to shit pretty fast
1: yeah um limiting the franchise is something i'm generally in favor of i don't i wouldn't be sure how to break that up i know that uh certain ways of doing it would just feel out of date in the 21st century mainly like uh Land ownership exclusively, maybe not. Uh, of course, I subscribe to the Robert Heinlein idea of like a citizen service, but that would require uh, a an already established positive governing force, which is in the 21st century very difficult to find.
0: And in case we lost any of you, when you Heinlein, he's mentioning Heinlein, is the guy who wrote Starship Troopers. Uh, you probably have seen the film if you're listening to my podcast. So that's the context we're talking about. I actually want to. Uh, I've been waiting for a moment to connect this back. So I am not ultra familiar with Misha Moldbuck, but I did um, listen to his interview with Michael Malice. And you um, mentioned about 21st century politics. Um, how would say some of these ideas may or may not apply? I think really it's in our minds that they don't. Uh, and I was convinced by Curtis Curtis Jarvin, who is Misha Moldbuck, same guy. Um, that they are kind of still ongoing. So he made an argument to Malice. I don't know if you saw this interview or not, but he made an argument to Ma- uh, Michael Malice in regard to the current um Russia-Ukraine conflict. So hey, look at this, I'm tying into modern po- politics. Um okay. he made an argument that what uh Putin was doing is just basic medieval politics as it had always been done. So um, for those of you who don't know, Ukraine is not a very old country. It was uh Part of the Soviet bloc and i think before that and been part of um the what it would be the russian kingdom the Tsarist russian empire i don't know what you'd call it yeah um and so in a medieval context this was land that belonged to the Rus. he is the leader of modern russia and so he would have a grievance and in old politics there's not like a an authority to appeal up to once you're already at the level of like well i'm the leader of a nation so you make your grievance and that is meant to uh, signal to others that you're not arbitrarily just seizing something that you have a reason to. And if they find a reason satisfactory enough and you have the force to do it, then you it's sort of like you're your own lawyer and your lawyer is your army. And now you're you're taking back the thing from what is yours. And it's sort of almost like uh, suing somebody. But that's how it was done um, in the past, because, again, there's no higher authority to
1: appeal to. Um, does that sound about right? Yes, and I would like to secondarily shill the computer video game Crusader Kings 2 as a good indicator of how this generally works in a mechanical sense. Yeah, it's accurately, generally accurately reflects international politics from uh, like 697 to. 1453 is very much like that expansion was only considered legitimate by things like the church and stuff if you could have a claim which you could press which was usually by blood land ownership of course people fabricated claims and such and people made up reasons to invade but the reasoning was still there and from that perspective from a historical perspective uh Russia most certainly had the right, although not the mor- not necessarily saying they have the moral authority to attempt to claim lost land.
0: Yeah, we're not saying like Russia did nothing wrong and Putin did nothing wrong. What we're saying is
1: no, that
0: those old politics might really still be alive now. We just don't see them because we're used to thinking of the world in this post-Enlightenment uh, way, which is not really how the world is it's uh one of those false
1: idols uh globalist capital marketplaces are a very weird anomaly in time and this has prevented a lot of these kind of conflicts from occurring but because we replaced that kind of conflict with economic conflict but i feel in time as the legitimacy of modern of like Western currencies and the the bad things that are happening in the current year and onward occur, I think we're gonna see a return of history. Uh Time magazine I think whenever Russia invaded Ukraine put out a cover that had said the return of history and I thought that was very, very, very interesting. Okay. Oh, they didn't know that, actually. Yes. Yeah, there,
0: there. I think there's going to be a lot of returns to history. We're, we're seeing, uh, if I shift into culture a little bit, we're certainly seeing a kind of, I don't want to call it a conservative, because conservative to me um, is not a very useful term because it's always relative like in co- conservatism in Amer- america is liberalism whereas conservatism in britain is like monarchism yeah. <laughs> so it's like these are not the same thing um I actually put out uh, three aphorisms one day at uh, this is a small aside uh another small aside i should <laughs> say uh where i i talked about how okay look um modern uh There are no conservatives in the classic sense in America because conservatives are supposed to be liberals. They just forgot that. And then the liberals aren't liberals. They're actually progressives. The progressives aren't even progressive, really. They're all beholden to the same Hegelian religion that they don't even know about but is operating as their kind of – I like the way James Lindsay says it's like an operating system – uh, a set of presuppositions or axioms that they're just kind of running on, like uh NPCs. So the yeah. meme- memes of all—it's all a
1: common out. thing to say in America, uh, at least among liberals in America, that the the America is very stuck in the right, and there's no such thing as uh, a true leftism in America because especially in comparison to Europe, but I think the reality is that uh there's not really a conservative movement in the European sense because like I, Michael malice said that like Republicans are just liberals going the speed limit,
0: <laughs> yeah, and that's uh if you haven't heard of it before, uh friends fellow viewers uh it is called the Whig view of history um so my my history is actually relatively poor, but uh, as i'm if I'm aware there was a political party, the Whig Party. And they actually were um if I can pronounce this right, hi- not historians, but like histor historianism is ists. Uh so histor are you familiar with historicism? Like the yeah, I'm I
1: I'm familiar with Whig view of history and the idea that History is just like a trial and error combination of things leading to some kind of progressive end game an end of history, kind of like Fukushima, which I, I think his name was Fukushima. Anyway, it was a Japanese uh, writer or Japanese American not 100 percent certain on his actual background but uh he had wrote that he believed that all of the 20th century was leading up to the uh the final state of society which is liberal capitalism
0: yeah and i've been listening to a lot of james lindsay Uh, i mentioned his names a couple times in this conversation because it'll be relevant a lot uh at least what he's been talking about and it's a catholic idea i believe uh called the eschaton which is the end of history where it's, we return to paradise and this Whig view of history i think is predicated on um kind of uh i think they're actually archetypal desires but uh we often call them rousseauian assumptions so without going too deep down this rabbit hole there is a um let's say i gotta get a little bit into Yoon, but not too far um there's this yeah i I go too far into you a lot that's why nathan's laughing at me um but there's this thing that happens when you become an adult and you become more and more conscious and self-aware well if you think what it means to be self-conscious it means to be aware of yourself in a way that makes you uncomfortable well when you become an adult and your let's say faculties of reason and attention are developed enough what happens is you become aware of all the different ways in that you're suffering all the different ways that you're not quite what you thought you would be. Your uh, your life trajectory might not be what you thought it could be. Uh, and that's painful. You have a choice when you reach that crossroads and your choice can be um, to switch over to, to Nietzsche here. You can become life affirming and say, okay, I now am I'm aware of what existence is. And I will say yes to this and work within that framework. Uh, that's sort of like, in a funny way, you can think of it as becoming like Conan the Barbarian, where uh, there there's a scene in one of the stories where he's uh, talking to his girlfriend at the time. He has a queen, different girlfriend in every queen book.
1: Queen of the Black Coast is the specific story that uh, he mentions this. About. Damn, that's
0: impressive. Yes. <laughs> he makes it up where they're talking about religion on the ship. And then he's <laughs> like, well, look, here's my view. We're all going to die. And then I believe we're just going to be cast into the Great Mist. So I'm going to embrace this life for all that it is while I'm here. Because for him the afterlife is like equivalent to nothingness.
1: Yeah. It's all about I live in the moment. I'm uh Conan and by the way is a very like uh secular libertarian kind of series. A lot of people don't because of the movies don't appreciate the philosophical depth, but uh I r- highly recommend people who are interested in those concepts to go ahead and give the stories a shot. They're usually short, you can read them in bursts and they're all self-contained
0: so yeah and actually if you read them in chronological order for their publication they get better and better and better yeah uh so they're worth it now you can so you can choose to become or rather adapt the attitude of conan no one gets to become conan the barbarian yeah. <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh but you can adapt that attitude and mm-hmm. i think that's really what nietzsche meant by the ubermensch yes. really is to be it's a so embracing of the way life is that uh you you confront it with a positive attitude. Um or
1: you Joker can do, mode.
0: Or Joker mode, right? So that's Rousseau. So it's interesting, actually at the end of The Antichrist, it's kind of out of place in the book, I think. Or maybe it's at the end of Twilight of the Idols, one of the two, one of Nietzsche's last books before he went mad. Um, <laughs> he talked about how much he hates Rousseau. Mm-hmm. Because Rousseau bastardized the idea of going back to the instincts. And so Nietzsche thought That's why compared to Conan, Nietzsche thought that what he was doing is saying, no, 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 we are animals and we're in this world and this is as good as it gets. And we should build our ideals out of flesh instead of out of stone because there's not a stone. It's not real. It's a lie. It's an artifice. It's a false idol that we're worshiping when really, um, really. As he describes, this is in the Antichrist for certain, the, how the idea of the Redeemer should be viewed. Because he, he the reason he called his book the Antichrist was because he was putting forward uh, the idea of his Zarathustra. And his Zarathustra, it's funny if you listen to Jordan Peterson, because this is all going to sound backwards, because Jordan Peterson got his idea about his interpretation of Christianity from Nietzsche. Uh, he doesn't ever say this, but you read the Antichrist and about halfway through you're like, wait a minute. wait a minute okay so mimicking christ in abstraction in your own life is what nietzsche said you should do because christ is the only christian because he he didn't feel resentful at the world yes right you know forgive them father they know no no not what they do right so it's like oh you know what it's not their fault guys you guys are just dumb you can't help it it's okay i'll die yes
1: (laughs) that's uh that's one thing that I personally have always had a problem with in uh, most religious circles, although I appreciate what they do for people morally. They tend to, uh, this is both common in Christianity and Eastern philosophy, is a hatred of the material and a total rejection of that in favor of something that may be coming, maybe if you believe hard enough.
0: Yeah, and that wraps us back around to Rousseau, right? Because what Rousseau did is he he had this image of life for primitive humans as being sort of sort of like the Garden of Eden. It wasn't exactly like it, he, he kind of reasoned his way into it in a very kind of like how the devil uses reason to trick you kind of way. Yeah. Um but he thought okay in the in the pre-times everyone was equal because we were uh in this primitive state of we were all Conan the barbarian. <laughs> uh and really read the discourses on uh the source of inequality uh are the origins of inequality uh it's a, it's an it's short but it's annoying but get through it and you'll see this guy was insane uh that's where many of the French writers during the revolution these guys really need to be put in an asylum but um from that will that desire to go back to the Garden of, of, of Eden we get this Whig view history right where we think okay History is moving to an arc to the end of history, and as it progresses, progress is linear, uh, meaning that though it might, you know, not that we won't have up and downs, but we're moving generally speaking toward a return to paradise. Um, And that that characterizes what in America we call liberalism, but really isn't liberalism. It's progressive, progressivism is a better name for it because it more accurately describes what they believe which is that any progress towards this I- ideal um and you'll hear me use this terminology over and over and over again this false idol because uh i'm very much agree with nietzsche that all ideals are false idols they're lies that we tell ourselves and we know they're lies because they are not as reality is they're as we wish it to be or imagine it to
1: be we try to construct these lenses to make reality more tolerable to our rational minds but the reality is of course like things are as they are and we can choose how to look at them if we want but once we start choosing to look at things through a lens that distorts reality it becomes a problem (laughs)
0: Yeah, and I can I can tie this back into that little uh Nietzsche interpretation of the Redeemer by throwing in some medieval Catholicism. Cause like the pre-rational medieval Catholics, um I think this is attributed to Aquinas, who I haven't read Aquinas' work because it's you know, I don't know, a hundred volumes of massive you know, text. But um uh, his definition of God is God is that which is. So he's saying reality as it is is god if you read Taoist uh literature they do the same exact thing they don't have a, a single conception of god but they'll call it like the great clump or the source of the way or something like that the dao that cannot be named because if it can be named it's not the dao um the idea that there's a fundamental objective reality that is that your perception is a reflection of um but it is fundamentally that which is it, this is sort of like the upside down version of plato uh, so Plato had the idea that the really real was outside of objectivity in this realm of forms. So imagine, flip that on, a he- on its head, it's like, no, 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 the physical material existence is fundamentally real, and it's our ideal that is a way that our mushy biology can understand that fundamental objective thing that we're all swimming in, right, Um that would be That would be the way to to think about that, so
1: Nietzsche called Plato, I think at one time like one of the greatest disasters for uh human philosophy because of the idea of the metaphysical world of forms more or less is what's being described and uh although i I kind of go back and forth of that because I've started enjoying elements of Ebola, which is a real trip into esoteric literature. Uh, Julius, Julius Evola believed in being, like, a weird uh, uh, anti deluvian wizard, more or less, is, like, be a man in the world but not of, of the world, be realistic, but, like, think beyond the material in that sense.
0: Um, yeah, that makes sense. You know, I mean, Nathan would know me and you guys will start to know this as I put myself more and more out there online. I'm not very much a materialist uh, as much as I, I just talked about how reality is fundamentally this material reality um you know we our understanding of materialism now comes from the enlightenment where yeah. we take things like like anything that's an abstraction and say that it is just or merely a distraction i have an aphorism about this i think it's called uh not just but also and it uh is a critique of this mode of thinking that we have where we put the word uh just or uh only or merely uh or more uh in front of something in order to reduce our conception of that thing to a narrow window of it so that i don't have to think about the other parts because that would be inconvenient um sort of like when someone comes up to order a latte and they say i just want and they list like 20 items and it's really annoying and not because you can't make it because it's like you're you lady and it's usually a lady doing this uh but you lady don't want to feel bad for having this whole thing yeah. yeah having this whole complicated order like, so you you come in with this like well i just it's only
1: this thing that i'm gonna list and it's gonna take me like five sentences uh it's it that's purely for them most of the time yeah. it's just for them yeah. well i think
0: the enlightenment did the same thing as the uh lady and uh, choosing to order her latte in an annoying way um, well I, I do think that right so i think what they did is there were inconveniences when we ran into these what we would, we would call metaphysical problems in philosophy and they couldn't solve them with um rational materialism in science because it it does it's not the right tool for the job yeah. and so you encounter these things and like either you can lean on religion if you're lazy like john Locke, which probably was the right choice actually don't you (laughs) you know when he he reached that point where he's like and god will figure out the rest (laughs) i think that was probably the right answer and the fact
1: that we moved away from that was probably a mistake Uh, as much as i'm not religious yeah (laughs) it's just um as time goes on it shows more and more that most people are incapable of establishing their own direction in life or even their own basic moral compass like i i was guilty of uh being an edgy atheist in my teen years and being like people can definitely construct their own moral codes because i was able to the reality is most people aren't like that most people are just going to use it as an excuse to be hedonistic or selfish or the, yeah, all like the, stuff.
0: the herd animals, right? Yeah. I was talking to Leon about this in the last podcast. So the classical view that there are those who uh, pray, those who fight and those who work. Uh, and I mapped that on to uh, Nietzsche's view that he describes in the Antichrist uh, about uh, there are the free spirits and the free spirits kind of got ta- uh, subterfuged by the priestly class. That's how we ended up with those who pray. But the other two still map on quite well. There are those who fight. Those are the people who are essentially in government because they are the uh the gangsters that do battle with other gangs and hold the turf. They're the warrior uh, the warrior clans that are part of a larger tribe that uh do all of the militaristic and policing work because they have all of the people who have that will to fight and um, otherwise don't have a very good place in society, and then you have the herd, those who work, who are like domesticated herd animals.
1: Yeah. Um, Bronze Age Pervert, uh, a very eccentric online right-wing writer, had said that there's only really two forms of government, a military government and a mafia government, and the military government is kind of already a mafia in a sorts, but more of a cool mafia. So... (laughs) (laughs)
0: yeah they better uh, actually I don't know if they're better dressed i think actually most mafias are better dressed than most uh government officials are but yeah we we run into this this issue where people might very well have been better off um with their irrational prejudices now i don't think all irrational prejudices are equal but i do think ones that are pattern out by the world. This is a Taoist idea that uh, in order to find your place in the world, you have to be uh, properly broken by it so that it's like uh, what they call a tally. So what they used to do when they sent a message is you take this piece of bamboo and you break it. When you broke it, the two pieces would perfectly fit together if you wedge them when they're on the jagged edge. Uh-huh. And then uh, the other person would have uh, one tally and you would have one. And when you sent the messenger uh, with the message, it would map on perfectly. And that's how you know it was legit and it didn't get replaced by someone else trying to, uh, uh, let's say intercept your message and 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 you know trick whatever government official that was getting the message. Yeah. Well, they said we're like that with the universe, and so what that means is that we have to um, not just us, but like our descendants and our ancestors through and societies through time get roughed up by making mistakes, uh, by suffering fundamentally, um, and then also through successes, and that shapes us like a tally. And the other tally is that objective reality with which we don't have direct access and we can let's say be in accord with reality through repeated voluntary exposure to being roughed up because then we're not afraid we're not trying to protect ourselves from the consequences of ourselves and then we can actually operate in the universe it's sort of like natural selection Mm -hmm. like if, if you're willing to have the the not adaptive individuals die off because they're doing things that are causing their failure to successfully reproduce and what you're left with is that which fits and flows in accord with, uh, with the universe. And I think religion was that basically that's a long winded way to say that our, uh, let's say irrational pre-modern beliefs were those things. They were ways that we had adapted, uh, stories we told ourselves that got us to behave in such a way, or at least got the herd to behave in such a way that they could be, adaptive rather than decadent
1: yeah um a lot of uh ideas of like a priestly caste and stuff was to establish a rationale for the strong to protect the weak and while nece- i believe that that is a necessary element of a of a society especially because the weak can be productive and maintain the warrior cast of the strong. I also think it should be uh, an element of being strong should be to raise others that you care about up and not let them wallow in their weakness. Which is an element of that. Whenever we're talking about the natural selection thing, I don't necessarily think that the weak should necessarily die off, but that, because I'm I'm not a eugenicist or anything, I'm not a fan of that necessarily. But I believe that, like, people should be the best that they can possibly be, and they shouldn't have an excuse to be anything but.
0: Yeah, so I'm very much, uh, I don't want to say, uh, I take an old Japanese view from reading too much samurai literature that, (laughs) you know, people should be shaped by their shame. Like, shame is a very important emotion, and it is uh, something that will save you. If you listen to it if you you know you're aware and feel so terrible that you make changes in yourself that you need to make um, I also agree it, it I would not prefer to see um, heroin and crack addicts and probably uh, probably not meth addicts because they're, they're not gonna sit there too <laughs> long but uh, on the corner at the end of my street that I live on like uh, you know I, I would uh, like to be able to walk or jog down the street without uh, you know when I pass along reading, myself in case they do something erratic. Uh, But, you know, that would be better if those people were to have help. And if they are willing to help themselves, then, you know, I'm all willing to help them as best I can. However, I do, I do think actually that the subterfuge of the priestly class was the bad way to do this. In case we've lost our readers at this point, because I think (laughs) I think we know what each other are talking about. So um, there's this idea that the priest essentially seizes power through his position by turning the uh resentment of the herd back on itself. Um and Nietzsche mentions in uh The Gay Science that he thinks this might even or no no not the gay science, the genealogy of morals. This
1: I'm going to confirm the name of something before I say it. So I don't sound stupid.
0: All right. Well, you keep going. All right. So in uh genealogy of morals, and I've corrected myself. Um, he talks about how this might have even been necessary, like the rise at, uh, of the priestly class um, as a means to stop the herd from destroying itself. Uh, but the issue is that it, it's it sort of um, legitimizes people like Marx, who thought religion is the opiate of the masses, and in some sense, it very well can be. Um, I've been running into into this issue where I, you know, I just kind of bigged up religion a moment ago and how it was useful, but it can also make people, uh, let's say, not they don't confront their shame; it gets cloaked. Right. So if uh, each week you can go to church and then identify as uh, a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim or whatever, or perhaps you're like Buddhistic and you're just going to let go of your desires and enter into nihilistic nirvana, Um, you don't have to confront yourself. Right. Like you're, 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 you're. you're using a false idol, as Nietzsche would say, as a kind of surrogate sacrifice. You're sacrificing somebody else. If you're a Christian, by the way, and you've been offended, um, I would consider this will offend you more. Um, <laughs> the, what you're doing is sort of like being the guys who crucified Jesus, so that you're uh, you don't have to be judged for your sins, right? So you're not being the heroic figure up there. You're not representing yourself as that figure. you're the person. You're the persecutor.
1: Yeah, um, and while I generally agree with that stuff on in the Christian's defense, or in religious people's defense entirely, I have come to the conclusion that in the absence of God, people will just try to build gods, and the idea of people trying to build, like, uh, artificial intelligence machine gods have proven more and more terrifying as time goes on and more and more people get excited and talk about it. And we see the uh, technological development. And if you're liberal, you should especially be concerned because most of the AI we build seems to be racist for some reason. (laughs) uh... (laughs)
0: That's really, uh, I mean, we say for some, for some reason, well,
1: there are probably reasons, but that's besides.
0: Yeah. YouTube don't kill us. (laughs) Uh, But, um, but yeah, I think that the religions of old are way preferable to the new religions. Before we started recording, we were talking about Hegel. And when you realize how recent Hegel was, he yeah. was writing right before Nietzsche. So this would have been like 19th century. Yeah. That is spooky. That's after. Um, you have, uh, a how, lot of the, like, Federalist Papers, I think, were written, Yeah, all how, 17.
1: How recent a lot of these radical ideas that have swept, like, humanity in the last century, when in the past it would take an absurd amount of time for somebody to develop a philosophy that would take hold of an entire civilization. Like, uh
0: If you like archetypal representations, one just popped to my mind. So for all of of you who played uh, The Elder Scrolls Three Morrowind, the main (laughs) bad guy, Dagoth Ur, builds a gigantic mechanical god that he plans to use to spread blight disease to turn everyone into zombies. (laughs) And if that doesn't sound (laughs) like what might happen with an AI who turns everyone into pod people's uh, zombies Mm -hmm. in the metaverse... (laughs) um,
1: it should sound like that, and that oh, man, Mark Zuckerberg is dig author.
0: <laughs> yes, um, unfortunately, I don't think we're gonna. I don't know that Elon Musk is Narvar, so yeah, uh, I don't know if it's gonna work. Uh, so, so yeah, uh, I kind of uh, uh, at least put a bow on the, uh, not a bow on, because it sounds like we're ending to wrap this around again to what we've been talking about, which is these kind of dark enlightenment ideas uh or dark enlightenment adjacent or just ideas that are uh going to be, you know, people spit the word fascist, even if we're talking about monarchism, which is like that's not what fascism is, you idiot. Um, but they they're actually not these evil plots for people who just want to subjugate others. Um they are the confrontation with the limits and natural consequences of um the enlightenment and with uh as we were saying before the one of the consequences of having the priestly class take over is basically social justice yeah uh because you have to you keep turning the herd on itself over and over and over again. And eventually that, I think that is how we get to where we've gotten. I mean, if you look at all the modern social justice ideas, like even social justice as a term itself was stolen from Catholicism. So this is all, I I think Nietzsche was right. The natural development of uh, Christianity uh, as it would say, has this idea of moving toward the truth. Well, it ends up revealing itself to be untenable. Uh, falls apart, creates false idols in its place. Uh, or more false idols, I should say. And those are the gods, like Akulakhan, who are going to spread blight across Morrowind and drive out the
1: Enwall. Yeah. So uh, a big... Just any idea... Like, it's... Any right-wing dissident ideology in the current age is more or less looking... At liberal, the concept of the Enlightenment and liberalism as a whole, and making the thinking about how where we are now and how and all the things that aren't ideal about it are a result or an uh, an inevitable end result of liberalism and enlightenment uh, and the Enlightenment. It's not necessarily the idea that we should throw out all of modernity. Or something like a Ted Kaczynski esque figure, or a Unabomber esque figure, but the idea that we should take the wisdom of the past and build forward, but in a different direction, and that's where like you you can you can evade the idea that they're just like supervillains trying to undermine our progress. I mean, to an extent, there will always be people who view it that way, but the reality is we want to build a future just a different future than what we've been dealt
0: yeah and it's a less uh ideal future why do i use that wording because it's a future that takes into account that we're uh as jordan peterson might say chimpanzees full of snakes yeah (laughs)
1: like
0: we're not gods uh we're not trying to build a and and we should kind of really define what right wing is so we'll start out with like the with the uh, National Assembly in France is I think where this comes from right, so the right wing were the people who thought that the uh, either the nobility or the uh, royalty or monarchy should be left intact and have a veto, and the left wing was that um all of the old structures of power should be done away with, and it should be entirely up to the uh the general will uh, which is the like the assembly itself to just vote sort of like a parliamentary vote on what goes and what doesn't and there's no there's no check on its power
1: so that is that uh about right yeah um more or less uh hierarchy good uh lack of hierarchy equals chaos is the right-wing position in the most boiled down kind of fashion Yes, yeah. like, uh, liberalism in the current year focuses a lot on the rejection of what they believe to be unjust hierarchies, but even they just plan to replace those hierarchies with what with they consider just, which is usually based on historical grievance over any kind of merit.
0: Uh, and yeah, explicitly so. So if you read something like, um... Uh, Critical Race Theory, the, what is it? There's a subtitle to it. The writings that founded the movement, something like that by edited by Kimberly Crenshaw. There's a bunch of uh, contributors, however, but multiple times they explicitly state that that is their goal, um, that they want to rearrange the hierarchies. Ultimately they want it to flatten out. uh, But the idea is they're going to uh, rob from whoever's most successful Those things that give them success And continuously give it to the bottom Until everyone is at the bottom Yeah, <laughs> I'm not kidding Because that's the um, the idea And you see this with Foucault as well So um, I haven't read through all of Foucault I've hardly read any of Foucault But I've read enough to realize he only has one argument He just makes it over and over and over and over and over again Which is that there are fundamentally Somewhat arbitrary power dynamics In all relationships and uh that creates inequality and then he uh he does this weird therefore from that that it's unjust and therefore all uh let's say power uh structures or all structures or or all hierarchies are uh equally as illegitimate as one another now what that does if you have let's say just some arbitrary idea that you want to impose on other people that lets you say, well, my idea is just as valid as your idea. Cause all ideas are just as valid as all other ideas. Like Derrida did the same thing for different means. Like, Oh, I'm going to attack logic. And if I can dismantle logic as fellow logocentrism, that's just your opinion, man, which is basically all of what Derrida really said.
1: I feel that that while in a way is their both their greatest strength and their greatest weakness, which you see a lot of dissident circles, just, uh, dismissing uh, liberal constructs out of hand because, like, if everything is just your opinion, bro, then there is no reason I have to care about your sacred cows, whether that be uh, the idea that, like, we should have to pay taxes in the libertarian circles, or the idea that even, like, there is racial or gender equality in those kind of circles. It's like the more you just make it up to its subjectivity, there is no thing, it's just our reaction to the thing. Well, my reaction to the thing is to not care about what you care about.
0: <laughs> yeah. So I have a an aphorism called the Marauder's counter argument, and um, the Marauder is a character I'm going to be adding into a series of short stories. His name is Kashim, and essentially he's like a bardic barbarian philosopher. And the whole premise of all the conceit of all the stories is he's on some misadventure. Um, he gets into an argument with someone at some point, and because he's a barbarian uh inspired from conan by the way he doesn't be- he's not beholden to like decorum so if you say something to him and you reduce it to a power game he pulls out a blunderbuss and just shoots you <laughs> right because well that's what you've done right it's like okay yeah. well uh if everything is just perception and hey what's that over there and you're looking in the other direction he shoots you in the back of the head Well, you didn't get shot in the back of the head because you never saw it coming, and the trap is going (laughs) to be flying faster, and then you can hear it. So there's your argument, and there's a pool of blood on the ground.
1: Yeah, Um, like, inevitably, like, a lot of this deconstruction will result in power games, and just, I'm thinking to myself, if it ever comes to that, they're going to lose. I don't know if they realize it, but they're going to lose. And I don't want that. I yeah. don't want to see a lot of people suffer as a result of
0: that. And the people who win will be the most cutthroat, sociopathic. Yeah, like it's it, it, that's how Stalin got into power, and Mao, and Pol Pot, and all the other people who killed just a ton of other. Oh, and by the way, um, I'm gonna throw let's throw Hitler in that list because did you know that he was a Hegelian yes. in his orientation? Like when I found that out, it made it made perfect sense that he was old Hegelian as opposed to young Hegelian, but it's the same stupid idea about bringing about the ideal. That's what the the master race is, by the way, Um, is let us bring forward the end of history for a race. It's the same fucking idea as Marx. It's so annoying that nobody talks about that ever at all.
1: Yeah, it's uh, um, the whole esoteric... Hyperborea race thing is its own rabbit hole because I really like weird uh esoteric concepts and such. But uh, I won't I won't bore people with that. But it's definitely like um, Hitler was de- like people s- he often associate Hitler with like right wing movements and stuff because like of course in like really out there dissonant groups he like ideas of Hitler's are popular, but uh he's. Very, he was a very he was a very socialist-minded man. He was just also not an egalitarian at the same time. He still believed in the traditional paganic ideas of uh, will of power and strength. It's just I sh- should use my power and strength for the people that I like.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it, essentially, it's the uh, slightly more conservative faction of a highly progressive post-enlightenment idea
1: yeah like everybody like hitler and stalin and all those figures were all in a form reactions to the anxiety produced by uh early 20th century results of capitalism with world war one and the severing of like people thought there was going to be an eternal peace due to markets, kind of like the last few years. But uh, yeah. and then suddenly all these national relationships broke everything and everybody was fighting and everybody was like, uh, so that doesn't work. Let's build something else. And like Hitler's one side of that coin, Stalin's the other. It's just different interpretations. Of yeah.
0: That. And what we're trying to say is that these hierarchical arrangements are an inevitability because They are an intrinsic part of both our biology, but also just the universe, like things arrange themselves in what we call a hierarchy, whether we want them to or not. And the idea that, well, these hierarchies are somewhat unjust, they're not perfect, right? They're not ideal. Therefore, just tear it down, man. (laughs) Uh, That idea is really stupid is what the is the right-wing perspective fundamentally it's like we're going to have to have hierarchy there's going to be some amount of arbitrary power there's going to be some unjust authority and you can't get rid of it because the moment you get rid of it all you do is create a vacuum in like water or air it just goes into where the void is because it's now not being occupied um and so what we want to do is we want to rely on the wisdom Garn from the past, or that, that tally uh, metaphor I made earlier, right? You're going know, to rely on that because we know that that works because it's worked. Now, so it might need updated because it's a the world changes. And so some of the, the fragments of the tally are now differently shaped. And so you need to have some new, a little bit new breaking, but you don't just throw the whole damn thing out because
1: then you the chance of you getting it right are close to zero. The idea that it's like something should not be because it isn't fair or just is just very childish and absurd. It's like I shouldn't, like, it's not fair that I have to, like, work for basic human food or what, uh, human rights or whatever, like food, water, etc. But the reality is, you're to an extent, that's always going to be the case. Somebody is going to have to work for you to survive. And it's not fair it's not uh, whatever but it's it's reality and that's what hierarchy is it's like um it's always going to occur it's not always going to be f- fair or just but the goal is to find the least bad option for everybody involved or at least the people willing to meaningfully contribute to the construction of the system
0: Yeah. I even have a little rant about that. Like people using the word fair or just, or particularly when people use the word right, uh, you know, someone, you do actually hear this if anyone is uh, incredulous, but you spend too much time on the internet, you'll hear people arguing, oh, it's not fair that I have to be a wage slave. It's like, look, man, just like every other being born into existence, you were dealt a random hand of cards. You were born into a particular place at a particular time, like everyone else. And so you had, you played the same damn lottery as everything that has ever existed. And you are now in the world, and you have to sustain your uh, hand of cards like everything else that has ever existed. The only way that you could say it's not fair is if you think, That is ought not to be. And if that's your argument, that's the argument Mephistopheles makes to Faust. (laughs) I am the spirit that negates, and rightly so, for all that comes to be, deserves to perish wretchedly. That's the (laughs) argument, right? That's the life denial. That is the will to nothingness. Uh, And uh, I think this was in uh, Genealogy of Morals as well. Uh, The the will 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 for nothingness before it ceases willing. And then after that, Nietzsche says, do you understand what I mean, (laughs) ma'am? Which is, this is like, oh, oh shit. He just said something important. And then you do understand what he means. And then it's terrifying.
1: Yeah. It's, it's very anti-life to just wish to get to that point because then you lapse into the attitudes of, well, I wish I was never born. It's just, it's not useful to look at the world in those terms.
0: Yeah, then you're one of the lost boys in Neverland. Which is another way to say nowhere. Which is another way to say utopia. Those oh. things all mean the same thing.
1: Yeah. Um, Utopianism is cringe. Don't try it. It's not going to work. It didn't work for anybody else. And it just results in a lot of death and destruction. It's mm. it's a bad idea, bro. Yeah. I mean, I guess death and destruction is inevitable. But it's, it, it greatly increases the amount of death and destruction. And it's needless. Yeah.
0: All right. So, uh before we go on is there, are there any other um ideas cuz we we definitely went on a multitude of tangents and left a bunch of loose threads. Anything you wanted to cover uh before we perhaps shift topics, Nathan?
1: Um not off the top of my head.
0: <laughs> All right. So, this I'm sure will end up being related. Uh I want to move into writing cuz if you guys don't know Nathan is also an
1: author. Um he is good better than I think that he thinks that he is. I'm not formally published, so I'm not technically a writer. I'm just a hobbyist. I do read a lot, though.
0: <laughs> but I did want to talk about writing, and I wanted to talk about an idea um, that I have about the... Uh, I, it might be presumptuous to say almost like the the teleology of writing, like what we're doing when we're writing, whether we intend to do that or not. So I've written about this a couple times. Uh, I think I have an essay on my website called Theme as Meta-Narrative. Um, But I think that every... uh, I'm specifically talking about fiction in this case, not nonfiction, uh, which is a little bit more explicit. But whenever we're writing a story, I think that we are actually uh, making an argument. And I think what we're doing is we're making an argument about reality itself. And I think that is inevitable because of the way that uh, plot works. So for those of you who don't know, um, plot. If you want to, use, we'll use Freytag's triangle. I think it's a good way to describe it. You've got the details of the story. That's the exposition. You have a conflict um, that is the thing that needs to be overcome for the story to resolve itself. And then you have the the resolution, which is the the consequences of um, the rising action and the climax of the story, where the decisive moment uh, unfolds, where it has the greatest tension. And my argument is that once you uh, set up the exposition, that's sort of like setting up the um, variables of a scientific experiment. You you set up the experiment to run, and then the uh, rising action uh, is the consequences of those, um, I would say uh the, the the set the setup the exposition and the choices being made so it, it's the uh, if x then y's of the story um and then once you've run that through its course you reach the climax and then what happens afterward you as an author whether you mean to or not are saying if under these circumstances that's exposition uh x then y then z that's the rising action to the climax then A, right? I, I know that's probably a bit abstract. What you're saying is if these things happen under these conditions with these types of people, the result will be whatever it is that I've written into the story. Uh, even if you intend it to be entirely unrelated, so if you're in like going to an MFA program or an undergraduate uh, and hopefully to do something with creative writing or literature, you're going to run into this, um, where a lot of modern writers will try to subvert theme itself and what that happens when they do that is you get one theme, and that theme is um, nothing means anything, right?
1: Yeah, uh, it's like the Seinfeld bit. It's the show about nothing, but it's not funny. It's uh, the whole point of like a story about nothing conceptually is that it's funny to think about how like uh, aimless that, like, life narratives tend to be. But the reality is, like, although life doesn't fit perfectly in a narrative, and that, like, this fiction tends to try and emulate life, right? But the thing is, like, narrative does imitate life, and life imitates narrative, it's just not a clean, structured one. It's like, narrative is vignettes, the interesting parts of somebody's life and narrative. It's like, like, the entirety of, like, the life of somebody like Genghis Khan is there's a lot of uninteresting bits that you'd want to skip there's a lot of stories about nothing in there but you're not interested in that you're interested in the things that he did to attain his positions or meaningful decisions he made and that's where narrative should come in
0: yeah in fact you might even say that is the only place narrative comes in And the reason why i say that is because um There's no such thing as a story without a conflict. I know there's, I've heard arguments about other forms of storytelling that don't center on conflict. And I've looked at them, and that analysis is wrong. They do center on conflict, they just resolve their conflicts in different ways. But without something that needs to be overcome, that may or may not be overcome, um, there is no story. There is no, you know, uh, there is no event. Um, What is it? reference uh elder scrolls 3 because as i mentioned it earlier at the very beginning they have this uh, quote from one of their in-world books and it's like uh without the hero there is no event well what does that mean the hero is only in relation to a conflict there's no such thing as a hero if there's nothing to be heroic about and even if we're just talking about the classic greek sense like in fact especially for the classic greek sense if there's nothing hard for you to do that's hard to overcome, it's difficult. that requires you to become more than you were then like there there is no hero, and then therefore there's no event. there's nothing really happening there. It's just a sequential list of details, but there's nothing
1: around there's no conflict around which a uh, story might be structured so the Greeks had this idea, I believe it is called Agon or agon. I don't know how to pronounce it uh that Everything in life is a conflict. The mere act of your existence is a war on inexistence. A war on the idea that you don't don't exist. So, like, everything you want to achieve is a mini-conflict, and you are an eternal warrior until one day you stop fighting, and that's when you die. So... It's like, even if you try to create a story without conflict, there's lots of little conflicts in there. It's like, getting enough out of bed every day is a conflict for some people, depending on their life circumstances.
0: Yeah, and actually, um, this is, uh, what I hate to say, is where some of these uh, progressive ideas start with a few premises that are correct. One of which, uh, I think, is the observation of the world through a dialectic now there are ways you can do this that are stupid but uh it is true that there we let's say the Taoists might say we live in a dualistic universe right so uh in the second chapter of the dao de ching um they talk about like when you decide that which is beautiful you've now created ugliness you've actually brought it into being and so when you do anything you create the opposite the opposition of whatever that thing is. For a thing to be, like you mentioned, it's the opposite of it not being, and it's the opposite of its, you know, uh reversed qualities, whatever is most distant from it, as it what it is. Um, which means that, yeah, conflict arises simply from being itself. Um and is this is where I think the progressives go wrong by the way, to tie this back with writing and uh, nihilistic postmodern works of literature. Uh they go wrong by thinking that you can get around the dialectical nature of the universe, yeah. and that's uh, that 's a will to equality, a desire let's uh, say Nietzsche might say out of resentment for the fact that one is not on top to bring down the top and the middle so that all is the bottom because then everything is equal, and everything is at perfect nihilistic peace
1: yeah um uh, there are writers in the dissonant right online circles that I tend to frequent that uh have this saying that the woke is more right than the mainstream because at least they're taking a position in this dualistic conflict. And, like, they are aware of these ideas that are true, but they take what we, be- at least some of us, believe is the wrong stance on those ideas. It's like, okay, so, like... There are differences between men and women, so we should reshape all of society to specifically compensate so that we have fifty fifty men and women in every job and et cetera et cetera when the reality is, oh no, there are differences between men and women, I would say then we need to cherish those differences and give people stuff they actually want to do and are good at and point them in those directions if that is the case,
0: yeah, it's a question about um fitting fitting ourselves, let's say, to ourselves as we are, right? Acknowledging that we are uh, constrained embodied beings and therefore due to our constraints we have to work within them. Uh, I think Thomas Holt called it the constrained view actually he yeah. there's a bit of argument back and forth between thomas Sowell and kimberly crenshaw it 's mm-hmm. uh, even in the uh critical race theory giant tone that i've read through uh where they by name like she brings them up over and over again actually I think yeah I, I think mean, she was frustrated.
1: He, he is the token african American gentleman who opposes the ideology so
0: yeah well he he certainly uh, more than a token, because his, his writings are actually fairly decent.
1: I know, but I'm just mean, and they, they probably view him as like...
0: A tokenized the, figure. The token
1: opposition. He, one of us that has betrayed the cause sort of thing. No, I actually, of course, respect the man very much, yeah. but...
0: Uh, he would be like, because um, again, this is with Kimberly Crenshaw's own words someone who happens to be black so who's first a person and then happens to be of african descent rather than a black person whose identity is wrapped up in uh in the it's a ethnic uh categorization um, Yeah. It, yeah so but we're we've strayed far and field again from literature um so yeah what do you think of my uh, it seems like you you fairly agree with the idea that as an author every time you write a story um you are making a case about the nature of existence oh, oh
1: yeah certainly so um uh, another thing that the woke is more correct on the main <laughs> than the mainstream about is all art is political it's just their political art tends to suck so the idea is uh you are presenting like you're taking a little thing that you think is true about the world and trying to present it in an interesting, compelling way, rather that be through the lens of, like, some kind of fiction or fantasy or whatever it is. So, like, uh... Every a lot of people's favorite works will uh, often have this well hidden within it but still speak to it so there's a, this is why you can have a lot of people who are like who consume a piece of media that the writer would hate them so like uh, a very common thing is like hippies that like Lord of the Rings right so like uh, Tolkien is a very traditionalist Catholic man who believes that As history has gone on, the world in a spiritual manner has only gotten worse, uh, even though we've progressed in a lot of other ways. He's very uh, anti a lot of modern concepts and ideas, but he's very loved by progressive types because of the naturalism in his stories, because people don't often associate preservation of nature and care for the world with Catholic conservative traditionalism sort of thing but Tolkien was very much that kind of man and romantic in that regard. So uh yeah certainly like all art is definitely uh a argument of so- sorts. It's just whether how seriously that work takes the argument and how that argument is presented. Like nobody wants to have an argument just shouted at them by a fictional character most of the time but you just we want to see it presented either through the narrative, like these actions reflect this idea, or at least this character is just explaining how they feel to another character, who in turn will explain how they feel. Uh, we uh, I know that Marquis is familiar with Dostoevsky, and he was probably the master of the idea of putting up two different characters with radically opposing viewpoints and just having them have a mental sparring match until, like... Yeah.
0: If if you haven't read Dostoevsky, it's extremely impressive to the point where he uh, will persuade you over to one side while that person is giving their case and then give you the opposite case from the other side and then just leave you feeling confused.
1: Which is ultimately probably the best form of handling a Message or idea in your work is to adequately explore the message, but also adequately explore its opposite and have them clash in some way. Uh, recently, me and my wife have had watched uh, Princess Mononoke, which is a very good example of this. It's like a Japanese anime version of Avatar the movie with James Cameron but the movie with James Cameron is stupid because it's like really leans on the naturalism side of things when uh, Princess Mononoke is this struggle between industry and nature and then you have the so the protagonist who's like a synthesis of the two and he's trying to bring peace to these chaotic things because one, uh, like, human civilization in is portrayed as a good thing but also it can be overdone in the destruction of nature in store. But anyway, but it's an example of a very good story that tries to take two extremes and find the synthesis between them.
0: Yeah, it, it does what most Ghibli films do well. Um, and it, I think because um, it leans very heavily on traditional Japanese Shintoism. Hmm. And in Shintoism, everything kind of has a spirit. To it. It's very much like the Native Americans, if you're familiar with uh, some of their spiritual beliefs. Uh, except Japan, somehow in the modern era, still has this is the last nation that's modern and industrialized and still has animism as a common. Yeah, the,
1: the interesting thing about that is that uh, if you look into ethnography and stuff, the Japanese and the uh, Native Americans can sometimes find uh, DNA similarities and stuff. So. It's kind of okay. kind of interesting from that uh, how much our ethnicity may actually affect certain aspects of our cultures and beliefs, or maybe it was just carried over that long ago when people were crossing the snow bridge or whatever.
0: Yeah, well, let's not get into. It. <laughs> there, <laughs> there, Well, maybe we'll get into. I
1: know it. it's a dangerous.
0: It's a dangerous. That, that is a dangerous place. I mean, I talk about it more, but I feel like I, I've got to go. Like I got a jail free card. <laughs> but yeah so let's get back to ghibli for a second maybe we can wade into that territory if we haven't gone on too long um so with with ghibli with the shintoism shintoism really as a religion is mankind coexisting with nature it's not worshiping of the uh the sun god and the death cult saying like you know mankind is a plague on nature and, and therefore should be destroyed for the preservation of it um, not that, and so, if you don 't know the plot of the film, there is a uh, group of uh, iron workers, and they 're led uh, this is very Japanese by the way, because Japan was a matriarchy in its uh, ancient time, and the when this is set, it would have been some it, it's it 's totally a fictional version of japan but a
1: lot of uh agricultural societies before certain points were probably matriarchal it's a that's a big thing that i've read a al- lot i'm very interested in primitive man uh there were there there's theories that like most of europe was probably run by matriarchies that were overcome and overtaken by pastoralist nomads that just established like the b- uh, patriarchal hierarchies after i'm either conquering them or what people debate on the nature of it but yeah
0: yeah but anyway so you've got this um town where the bunch of iron workers led by uh, a woman leader who brought them the technology of firearms Mm -hmm. um and essentially they're just trying to get by there a bunch of outcasts that she has taken in uh a bunch of former prostitutes um and then uh, a lot of the men were uh you know, uns- unsavory types, and then there's a bunch of lepers, even, which at the time would have been unheard of to t- or take in bands of uh, lepers. And so they're sh- she shown shown as genuinely compassionate, and they are really just trying to live, and the spirits are dangerous, too. Like, they're not just... You know uh, the Disney version of like, oh, let's just get along with nature. It's like no, like they also kind of eat people, and yeah,
1: not like uh, we we talk about the peace and tranquility of nature, but re- in reality, nature is a savage survival game. All, every all the time, you go outside, you see a rabbit. That rabbit is in survival mode twenty four seven. He is checking his corners, all paranoid, like he's in Vietnam or something, constantly. Yeah.
0: And Princess Mononoke captures this where you know the you feel bad for the spirits are having their like forest destroyed and they're being dwindled down into dumb animals from these majestic massive godlike figures but like the people are just trying not to die um and you know it it captures the idea that like look it was just a struggle to exist in the past like you get a cut it gets infected you die if you get sick and you can't farm well enough you starve and you die if you can't pull this metal out of the ground and you need to keep digging in more and more areas then you die because you don't have enough money to pay for food or protection from other clans because i believe there's some other uh, gov- yeah there's some yes. other government that attacks
1: the that was going to go in workers. that was where was I was going to go into another tangent about how it also has a very interesting portrayal of colonialism which is often demonized in media but uh the reality is often that people who become colonizers or people who seek to set out Beyond the frontiers of their civilization, tend to be people who were driven out of their lands due to that. So people will then point out then why the, why did the Europeans sail to the New World? Well, the and the thing is the europeans were beset by the ottoman empire who in turn were beset by the mongol hordes who were in turn yet yeah, it's it's this constantly this constant history of grievances of people infringing upon other people's territory and then in a desperate bid to get the necessary resources to save themselves will often spread into another uh, peoples lands who they uh not necessarily perceive as lesser but think that they can overcome if necessary and this is reflected in so mononoke in that these these iron workers who are driven from their lands by war and pillage the uh, think that they can over uh, you know exploit nature and overcome this frontier
0: yeah
1: to better defend themselves from these oppressors
0: yeah, I have a similar argument in my own novel. I'm going to show it. Wand smoke broken. It's a fantasy novel, uh, stylized after something like a literary novel cross with a Western, uh, in there, uh, slavery is, and has been very common throughout their history with different, uh, either races or species. So the, the humans enslave each other, but then the humans also enslave the Fae and the Fae also enslave the, Like you know, like history, like what people yeah. were doing up until modernity in the British empire, the British empire, uh, abolished sl- the slave trade throughout most of the world. Um, anyway uh it's it frustrates me that everyone's like but fixated on american trans the, the american transatlantic slave trade and it's like you know the freaking english are the ones who stopped that and then also the mass slave trade in the middle east And some of that is even still going on. Anyway, so uh, I have my character broken, this little girl with a terrible skin condition, for which she has been given her uh, terrible names. Really sad story behind that, actually, that happened to someone in real life. Um, But she uh, is having an argument with a fairy. And essentially, um, there are uh, these... Kobolds, like the German house elves. Uh, If you know about house elves in Harry Potter, basically the same thing, similar. And essentially, they end up forming a uh, pseudo-communist gang and attacking the town. They all get arrested and are now locked as uh, workers in a uh, series of mine shafts. Uh, And actually, they're kind of happy doing that because it's in their nature to be workers and because they're like house elves, right? And so Broken's like, look, they weren't happy before. They were murdering people. We didn't kill them. And we locked them up, and now everything is better. Like I don't understand why you're so upset, fairy. <laughs> Um, And the fairy, because of her nature, the only views um, this as an infringement upon its its freedom. And uh, then they get into another argument with the fairy, is defending its own nature, saying like, "Well, look." I know I'm like a sylph and I lead children off cliffs to see if they'll turn into fairies or if they'll plummet to their deaths, (laughs) but it's just what we do. And like, you know, we need to, it's how they make more of their own, one of the ways they make more of their own kind. The other way is that they put them in cocoons and then they get reborn as fairies after they kidnap them from their homes. But, uh, but yeah, and you have these conflicting natures where um, the, there, there, there was no like real peaceable, solutions these they're uh, you have essentially different species that have predatory instincts against one another and they're put in situations where they have to have to exploit those right like they don't have really another option like the cobalts live in mine shafts or houses, and so either they're going to be stealing your house and tormenting you uh or if they get really wrapped up, they're going to be uh burning your house down and just murdering people. Or they are put into the service of the people, in which case because of what they are, right? And, I'm just, and I didn't make this up to make this argument. This is like the, the traditional folklore of what, what these things are. Um, so other people made it up. Uh, it, <laughs> it, it puts you in an intractable uh, moral conundrum, essentially is what I'm, I'm getting at. And I'm also trying to show my book. You should read it. A bunch of moral gray zones all over the place.
1: Uh, and also, if you like uh, Jungian alchemy-inspired stuff, that's a big part of it. Like yeah. the, the, the concept of the shadow and all that fun stuff.
0: Yeah, I delve uh, way too much into it uh, in this first book. But uh, it's great. It's it's great fun. Um, if you're a fan of Jordan Peterson, you'll love it. If you like Jung or Nietzsche or any of these strange and weird philosophies, um berserk if you like that and all the dark gritty murderous nonsense so it's it's an all for you yeah give it a shot all right so uh now that we we finished shilling my book um we've been going on for a while we should probably wrap it up is there anything else you want to say before we we close
1: um not in particular
0: no all right well this is a this is a really fun conversation i enjoy it quite a lot maybe next time we'll come back and talk about race realism something <laughs> <Is> that, <laughs> like, that, like that controversial yeah
1: um, maybe we'll uh we'll, we'll stick to the topic because we we jumped around a lot this time but
0: uh we're not gonna stick to the topic okay. all right uh, as a as a quick outro so i already shielded my book one smoke broken uh written by me marquise little um pick it up now because I'm coming out with uh, another book here soon within the next few months if everything goes well it never goes well it never goes as planned but pick it up now uh, while you can and if you're interested if you're an author yourself or know someone who writes or if you're a student you're looking to have a paper proofread for the last second before you turn it in uh, go to wildisle.com slash editing and uh, you can hire me as an editor I'm looking to build up my clientele uh, keep an eye out for more of these podcasts they'll be up on my website again it's wildisle.com and I'll be putting them On YouTube as well, and maybe other places when I figure that out and I'm not such a boomer. All right, Nate, Nate, thank you for coming.
1: Of course. Thank you for having
0: me. See you guys.